welcome to Let's Talk Law, the Law Careers podcast for students at King's College London. I'm Caroline Lintner, one of the careers consultants for the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's, and today I'm joined by Andrew Hall. Andrew graduated with a Master's in War Studies from King's in 2021, studying part-time alongside his role as legal counsel at Global Specialty insurer AXA XL, where his work focuses on investigations, litigation and special risks such as kidnap, piracy and ransom. After studying law as an undergraduate, Andrew trained as a solicitor at global law firm Norton Race Fulbright and qualified into their Paris office. In his spare time, he is a filmmaker and a climber. More of that later on. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So the first thing I wanted to really ask you about was about your current role at AXA XL. What type of work are you doing on behalf of your clients? Just tell us a little bit more about what you do there. Yeah, sure. So AXA XL is a division of the larger AXA group. So we're an insurer. Um, but as you mentioned, we focus primarily on very large commercial, global and specialty risks, the sort of thing that a lot of clients around the world will insure in London with one of the big global Lloyds insurers. Um, but the sort of thing which you can't just buy insurance for over the counter. Um, so I work for our underwriting legal team here in the UK, um, and that means that I see most of the kind of underwriting insurance business that, that comes across the company's desks here. As you mentioned, a lot of what I do has a sort of financial crime and, and fraud focus. Um, I came in as predominantly a regulatory lawyer doing investigations work. And that's led me in all sorts of interesting directions. So I spend a lot of my time doing contentious work. Um, I do a couple of big fraud cases where the company had been defrauded um, and where the claimant trying to recover our assets, which is really interesting, um, both from an academic legal perspective and you know, as, a, as a kind of new area of practice for me. Um, and most interestingly, I'm involved in our um, legal compliance process when it comes to special risks, um, ransom payments, ransomware payments, uh, negotiations in complex and quite sensitive scenarios such as piracy cases, uh, which is the kind of work I don't think I could have done anywhere else uh, and is a really interesting area of insurance that I think goes kind of unseen if you're outside of the maritime and insurance sector. Um, so yeah, that's been really interesting. Um, we have a huge crisis management team, so you often find that a lot of your work bridges you know, pure legal kind of black letter law matters and also much more complex and sensitive kind of personal negotiation, practical aspects, logistics, all of the fun things that go with, with dealing with these cases. It does sound fascinating and uh, um, certainly, you know, I mentioned at the outset, you, you trained and qualified at Norton Rose Fulbright and you were specialising in asset finance for the aviation sector, which feels to me quite a big departure to what you're now doing, actually. Mm. So, but how, looking back on that time, um, how would you say that that's helped you in your current role? And actually, was it difficult to broaden your practice to those new areas? Um, well, I think we're we're a pretty intense team at Axra Excel. We're fairly busy. And so I think having worked for a very busy transactional department at a global law firm like Norton Rose Fulbright helped me in, in being prepared for that. It gives you a mindset to be able to deal with a very high volume of work very quickly and to a very high standard. Uh, and that's certainly something that think is useful and you can carry into any different career. Um, it was also useful being familiar with transactional docs. Um, a lot of what I do, although it's, it's typically contentious, has at its heart quite complex insurance arrangements and structures. And I think not being terrified of the prospect of wading through you know, what might be hundreds of pages of potentially incomplete or unclear documentation 
that kind of confidence was was very useful indeed. Um, we also, by by happy coincidence, have quite a large aviation team at Axor Excel, so it's quite nice to work with people I'd already met or come across. And I think as well, I was I was living in Paris and speak good French. Um, and just before I joined the company, Excel was acquired by the Axor Group, who are of course a very large French company. So it's quite nice being able to uh, to keep up my French practice with my French colleagues. But I also think that um, in terms of refocusing, I, I agree with you, it was quite a big shift, but I, I didn't find it difficult to, to pivot to, to what I do now. And I think part of that is that there are two schools of thought when it comes to moving in-house. Um, one school is that you should you know, progress your career for a reasonably long period of time in private practice so that if you go in-house, you can bring with you a wide range of networks, contacts, obviously a, a you know, great amount of experience. And I do completely get that. And a lot of in-house hires are made by people who have maybe worked with a private practice lawyer for years and think, well, you know, you know my business so well, you should really come and work for me. Um, but on the other hand, I think I benefited greatly from moving in-house at quite a, an early stage in my career and professional development because it allowed me to lean on things I'd done in my training contract. All training contracts obviously cover a huge array of, of different areas of work. I'd done a lot of regulatory and investigations work as a trainee. And it was recent enough that I could I could lean on that. Um, and I think also it simply means that you're not too earmarked. It doesn't, at least on paper and, and to the outside, look like a, a fundamental career shift. Um, I think if you're maybe a six year qualified lawyer and you're trying to completely change direction, it starts to raise big questions as to why. Um, I think with myself, I was quite lucky. I'd gone on secondment with Excel as it was at the time. So I, I knew the people um, mm. and I was as a trainee. Um, and so I found it quite easy to, to settle back in. And actually bringing a different perspective was, was kind of helpful. Um, and something of a value add. Yeah, and I'd say that it is a certainly a trend that I was seeing more people. I certainly people within my network and probably yours as well who do go from private practice into in-house. And I know that term itself is changing um, uh, at an earlier stage in their careers and actually broadening out their practice as a result. But let's talk about the main differences between working in private practice at a law firm and working for a company where you are a lawyer like somewhere like AXA Excel, what would you say are the main differences? Because I know lots of our listeners will be very interested to hear this. Mm. I think the, the two fundamental things that I touch on are probably focus and independence. Um, as for focus, I think it's what you touched on with your question, you know, really in private practice, you're obviously serving your clients, whoever they might be from time to time, but you, you have to remember if you want to be a good private practice lawyer that ultimately you're working for an organisation, your employer, who's whose aim in life is to run a law firm. Um, mm. And that brings with it you know, a large slice of your practice being about business development, understanding your clients, understanding industry, more administrative aspects such as billing and all of the structures and, and incentives that go into a firm that bills by the hour or on a, on a project basis. Um, and I think in-house, obviously, your, your client more fundamentally is typically just one company or, or in our case, one, one group of companies. Um, and you find you, you of course, have lots of different internal, smaller clients, different stakeholders, whether it's management, compliance teams, people around the world. Um, but you fundamentally have to remember that the focus is on whatever it is that your your company, your employer is, is trying to achieve in the world. Mm. And legal is often just one part of, of the management conversation. It's obviously a very important part. But there are times when there are times, for example, when you learn that as a department, you might not be prioritized over competing concerns that are more pressing. There are obviously times when you'll find that you lead on projects that typically in, pri in private practice, you might have just been a kind of an assistant on mm -hmm. um, because legal are designated often as a, as a team in an in-house environment that can get things done. Um, 
you also have to remember, um, yeah, as I said, that you know, the, the legal voice is is just one voice, and sometimes trying to motivate your internal clients to, to either prioritize to see something as you see something um, is a more difficult thing than when you're in private practice, when mm. the focus is purely on getting legal advice and you're giving it to someone who has asked for it in the first place. Um, yeah. And I think that is a subtle difference, but I think it's quite an important one. Um, and, and somewhat relatedly, um, independence is is the other big thing, I think, from a kind of professional skills standpoint. You in-house, in I found you very early on in your career will be put into meetings, committees. You'll be running projects where you're the lawyer in the room. Um, and of course, you know, a good legal team is there to provide the support that you need and you can obviously go away and take advice. But you need to get used to not being part of a very large, you know, particularly transactional team as in private mm -hmm. practice. Um, I mean, it goes hand in hand with what I just said about focus. You know, we, for example, are an insurer. We're not a law firm. Mm -hmm. We have a very large legal department, but we're not about to staff every project with 10 lawyers in the way that a law firm can. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, getting used to kind of being an independent voice, uh, sometimes not even just an independent legal voice, sometimes just a voice of reason or, or caution or, um, or, you know, providing a, a more innovative view of something because you've seen it elsewhere. Um, that's all part of your role um, and I think that's not something at least at the junior end that particularly comes through even for a very good private practice lawyer um, so I'd say yeah that's something that, that sort of affects my career a lot and my my take on XRXL and I certainly think it may well be different elsewhere but um, as you mentioned a lot of my contacts in my network have recently moved in-house and I get the impression that the era if it ever existed where the in-house lawyer's job was just to micromanage an array of law firms and to outsource everything off their desk is certainly completely over um, mm. we outsource very little and most people i speak to do an awful lot of work in-house mm. and of course we're seeing some organizations starting to offer trading contracts now mm. um, which you know has on and off over the years depending on how the economy has done i suppose uh, has been something but we're certainly seeing something you know more of that trend coming through now mm. um Thank you, Andrew. That's fascinating to hear what the differences are and um, and your observations. But, you know, we'd be remiss of me on a King's podcast to not talk to you about your recent MA in war studies. Um, so you've done this part time whilst being a busy lawyer. So the most obvious question is, how have you had the time? But perhaps more <laughs> importantly, why did you make that decision to undertake further study at this stage in your career? Um. So I think I've, uh, as to how I find the time, I, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> it's, in, it's involved some miracles. Um, and actually, as, as I'll get to, a, a, an awful lot of help from from my colleagues. Um, but I, I love legal practice. Um, I love being a lawyer, but I, I'd also missed academia um, and I felt that when I qualified. Um, and I think an early in-house move brings with it a lot of benefits, a lot of opportunities. And one of those um, was greater flexibility. And yeah. I think little did I know when I embarked on this a couple of years ago that the world was about to face a massive experiment of flexible working. Mm. So I think I was slightly ahead of my time with this. Yeah, yes, um, indeed. But one of yeah, one of the benefits was was flexibility. Um, our team works really hard. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, one of the fundamental differences with the private practice team is the billable hour structure that I think incentivizes private practice lawyers often to, to be there between X and Y hours. So it was always easier for an in-house team to be more flexible. And once the opportunity came along to, to take the job, I made it very clear that one of the big incentives for me for moving back to London was to get back into academia, um, purely out of academic interest, if I'm honest. And actually being able to marry the two things together was great. Um, I think it'd be remiss of me not to say that um, 
it sounds like overpriced. Axra XL have been incredibly generous in in allowing me to do this. Mm. I think employers are starting to wake up to the fact that it's it's something that they're able to give that means an awful lot to their employees and doesn't necessarily cost much to them. We, yeah. for example, have a sabbatical policy, so I was able to take two months off um, to complete my dissertation this year. Something that I simply don't think, had I been a private practice lawyer, I necessarily would have been able to do. So in, in answer to your question as to the timing, I think I realised that the opportunity was there. I didn't know if it would be there forever, but it certainly seemed to be almost being presented to me on a plate and I, I wanted to come back and try my hand. Um, and as I mentioned, it's you know something that AXA as a group are, are very passionate about. And I think a lot of employers are, are waking up to this. Um, and I was grateful to my boss for for keeping her cool when I did ask for the time off to do it. Yeah. Um, I got a very good, very good reception. Um, that's good. So why war studies? I mean, maybe you're saying, well, what, that's a stupid question, Caroline, because, I, you know, we talked about the type of practice I have. But, you know, I'm just interested to why do you chose uh, that course in particular? I think I was really interested in the, the enormous breadth of um, the focus that the course has. I mean, thinking about it now that I've finished it, um, I realised recently we've been moving around all my academic books in our apartment. Um, mm. Much to my girlfriend's disappointment, we've even started taking over the bookshelf next to the dining table, although we try not to put the books there on, you know, torture and terrorism and all of that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, the, the sheer breadth, I mean, I, I spent my first year looking at you know, nuclear strategy, terrorist financing, financial crime aspects that touch quite closely on some of the work that I do, mm. um, but also things that I never thought I'd look at. I looked at Liberia with Kieran Mitten, who'd done a huge amount of field work on African civil wars. Um, and it was it seemed to be a degree programme that would offer access to people who really knew what they were talking about in a really wide range of areas. Um, and that was just something that I was I was drawn to. Um, so, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed the kind of the breadth and, and variety of, of material. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds it. So tell us a little bit about your experiences as as a postgraduate student at King's. I mean, as you alluded to, you, you know, your, your studies coincided with, an, with the most extraordinary of times that the world has faced for in a very long time. But keen to understand what you learned about being, you know, from being a postgrad, you know, academically and practically. Yeah, as, as you say, it was, um, I think, a surreal and quite unique experience to spend the first year of a two-year programme in person on campus and the mm. second year entirely online. Um, I think King's dealt with you know, the transition to online learning incredibly well. I was really impressed. And, and for me, I got to also add, I suppose, that as a part-time student, it was actually at times very convenient. Um, and given that the rest of my day was was spent on virtual meetings, and I already had to adapt to, to making that work. Um, that felt almost seamless. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned, the, the, the breadth of material on the course makes it very hard mm. to, to put my finger on one you know, standout thing I've learned academically, so to say I've, I've learned an awful lot, mm. um, all of which has, has been fascinating. Um, but I think practically I, I, I've learned a lot, both about myself and things that I can take away and, and you know, use in my career. Um, I think I learned, for example, that being a professional lawyer and, and having had the training, actually made me a, a better academic. Um, you, you're trained, especially at a very large law firm, you, you're trained to a very high standard to write, to argue, to present things with evidence in a rational way and to do so fairly quickly. Um, and I think actually, certainly at master's level, that's a very useful sort of suite of skills. So it's quite reassuring. I know initially I was daunted um, and I know a lot of friends who, who want to do postgraduate study part time are, are daunted about the idea of getting back into academia. The first time you pick up a journal article again after you know, five or more years away from university is quite challenging. Um, so it was quite nice and reassuring to realise, OK, well, yeah, I have the skill set to deal with this. Um, mm. 
but in terms of sort of takeaway skills, I think I've learned, for example, how to approach a topic I've got no prior knowledge about. I don't even understand the contours of it or where to begin. Mm. And to just delve into it uh, and be able to grapple with it in quite a, a useful way um, and reach an outcome quite quickly. So African civil wars, for example, I knew absolutely nothing about the Liberian conflict, mm. which is what I ended up writing my essay on. Um, but I also knew that it, it would become familiar that, you know, you, you have to kind of immerse yourself in material and eventually it becomes clear. You have to keep mm. an eye out for the contours, for the arguments. And that is a very useful thing that you can take into practice, especially in house where you know a lot of what you do is occasionally firefighting and mm. you really will get given something you've never seen before and you'll have to triage it. Um, and actually no longer balking at the prospect of, you know, immersing yourself really deeply in, in something you've got no prior knowledge of. Mm. Um, sort of dispelling that myth is really useful. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really, really interesting. As you say, it's good that you were able to take some of the skills you already had into that program, but also you, you know, re perhaps realised you had skills already there that you've been able to develop as a consequence of doing that program. Um, I mean, Andrew, I've known you for quite some time, and I, you know, I remember when you were going through the first process of deciding what law firm to apply to and what type of lawyer you wanted to be. Um, you know, you have the benefit of hindsight now, I guess, and I know our listeners is going to, are going to be really interested to to hear from you in terms of what you what practical steps you think students can take or consider taking to help them to follow the right career path for them, because it does feel very daunting, I think, when you're at the very junior end and trying to work out what's the right direction and what's the right path for me and just really understanding your your thoughts on that. I, I mean, the, the most sensible piece of advice that I should give would be to talk to you. Uh, as you say, we, we've known each other for a long time and, and that's have. what I did. Um, but I think if I'm being honest, you know, talk to people, um, network, but do it genuinely. Um, I think a really good piece of advice I was given was you should always reach out to people. That is important. But when you do so, you, you have to ask them questions you really want to know the answer to. I mean, it's Networking, I think, can seem like quite a nebulous and, and sometimes pointless concept. And I think it's because it's often distilled down to just adding people on LinkedIn. It's completely meaningless if you add me on LinkedIn and we never speak and you have no interest in, in what I do. But on the other end of the spectrum, if there's somebody out there who does what you want to do or works in an industry you're interested in, and they might know how you can get into the industry or what's going on with them at the moment or opportunities, you have to just ask. I think. I really think there's there's no one in my network who wouldn't want to help, wouldn't want to respond to you know some some reasonable questions about what they do, what they're interested in. Um, I think certainly you know, people are very busy, um, but I, I think people can be dissuaded when maybe if they've they've sent someone a cold email and not had a reply. I don't think it's ever or very rarely malice and a, you know refusal yeah. to engage. Um, I think sometimes patience is important, but yeah, I, although it's very basic, I, I would say you know reach out to people and ask questions. If something seems opaque, but you've heard about it. I had someone the other day, for example, speak to me. They said, well, you know, I've heard that you do piracy insurance. I've absolutely no idea what it is. Would you be able to give me a couple of lines that just say, well, this is how it works. This is what it is. I'm perfectly happy to do that. And I think that I hope that was helpful for that person. I think the other thing is I, I agree with you entirely that when you're you know, starting out on your career, you have to make some quite fundamental changes quite early and some quite fundamental choices. Um, and it is it's daunting to know which of the array of options you should go down. And again, it's quite simple advice, but I think you need to just take a very long, hard look in the mirror and think, 
you know, why do I want to do what I, I think I want to do? Some people I, I think are motivated by career satisfaction and they might you know, well say, well, I want to be a solicitor and that's that's what I want to do. And the reason I want to do it is just because I do. Uh, and that's perfectly fine if you're that person. But I think a lot of people, and, and I was like this, wanted to become a solicitor and actually indeed work at a specific place for very specific reasons. I sat down, as, as you know, and decided, well, look, I, I want to live in Paris. Um, I want to work for a firm that will give excellent training. I want to work on commercial matters that aren't you know, just black letter legal stuff. And so I joined Norton Rose Fulbright because it could make that happen. And it did yeah. make that happen. Um, and now if I look at myself and think, well, my priorities now, I, I want to live in London. I wanted a role that would you know, allow me to carry on doing further study. Um, I wouldn't let anyone take me away from my, my piracy work. I think that's fantastic. I really enjoy doing it. Um, but again, I want to work with a big commercial organisation and that has dictated my yeah. career decisions. And I think likewise, if you're out there and you know, you're really interested in black letter law and that's your thing, don't just think, OK, well, that means I'm going to be a lawyer because that in itself isn't you know, really going to point you in a specific enough direction. Ask, for example, you know, do you want to live overseas? In which case you might want to be, consider becoming a, a tax advisor. Um, do you want to live in the UK? You might want to be a, a commercial barrister. Then the decision is, you know, do you want to be on your feet arguing or do you want to write briefs? Um, if you want to be a criminal lawyer, for example, but you really want to travel the world, you have to ask whether you really need to broaden your practice and do something like international arbitration or investigations into corruption, because being an English criminal lawyer is going to keep you in England. Um, conversely, if you want to stay in England and develop a, a successful career here, then you know, that's the way to do it. And yes, yeah, so I think the exercise is about really trying as, as hard as you can, and it is hard, to delve into the quite basic things of what do you want to achieve. Um, maybe to see it in five or 10 year periods is also helpful. Um, yeah. I think law firms can be unhelpful when you meet a partner that's been there for 35 years, which is an achievement in itself, but isn't necessarily helpful, I don't think, to a, a 19 year old student who thinks, well, I can't really think past next Tuesday because yeah. I don't want to. How can I think to you know the 2040s? Um, yeah. And I think this exercise and repeating this exercise from time to time is, is how I've tried to map out my career. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great, great advice. And, it, you know, it's almost like you're, you're gathering evidence, aren't you, to try and work out what you want to do. And I always say to yeah. students, when you're being interviewed or when you're, you know, taking part in an assessment day activity or even writing an application for the recruiter and the lawyers interviewing you or any other type of professional, they're gathering evidence as to whether or not they're going to make you, you know, make you that offer or not. So um, they're actually not that different of the two processes. So, so let's talk about, um, you know, your day to day. Um, we talked about your practice, which does sound fascinating. What skills or attributes would you say you draw upon on a day to day basis? And, and what do you do or what have you done to develop them? And it may well be that some of it was the, was the masters that you, meant, you mentioned earlier on, but just really keen to understand a bit more about your skill set. I think the big one that often gets overlooked amongst many in-house lawyers, and it's something that I've found to be a, a massive thing, is project management. Um, mm. Very often, one of the sort of more fundamental differences between private practice, where you are just providing the legal input to a project, and in-house, where you're probably running it, is the project management aspect uh, and sometimes that's because there might not be a commercial impetus to do whatever it is that you need doing but you know legal might require it or, or law or regulation might require it and so you're driving something uh, more often i actually find it's that management in particular tend to trust their legal departments to get something done we have quite an executive function you know we, we need to deliver certain things and make certain things happen mm. but there are other aspects of a business any organization who don't necessarily have a kind of delivery focused mindset um, 
and so I find that yeah, you, you do spend a lot of time marshalling people, um, trying to bring people together around an idea, trying to understand different areas of a business that you're never going to fundamentally understand. Um, myself, for example, I'm not very tech literate, so whenever I get involved in a big project that involves our IT teams, I spend half of it trying to understand what on earth they do. Um, and you need to because if you don't know where they're coming from, you can't talk to them about whatever it might be, document retention or disclosure or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, project management skills are, are definitely the fundamental thing. I think law firms are starting to recognise the benefit of them yeah. as well um, at, the, um, at the junior end of a team. And certainly, even if you want to stay in private practice law for your whole career, I think a key attribute of a partner is obviously being able to, to marshal people and to build a team around themselves. Um, I was saying to my trainees the other day who were asking, you know, yeah, how do you develop this? Uh, I think there's really only one way, which is just to do it and to jump in. Yeah. Um, the first project you manage is almost certainly going to be overwhelming. Mm. Um, it might end up being just, you know, mismanaged, but I think you have to have the confidence to know it can only go so wrong. And the second time you do it, you learn. Um, yeah. Whether it's keeping people more updated, you know, liaising with more people at the outset, being clearer with your instructions, mm. something like that is, is something you just you learn as you go on. Um, but it goes hand in hand with the other big thing, which I think is about understanding where your business is going and, and who is driving it in which directions. Um, having good relationships with management is something that's really important. I think more so than in a law firm where you have something of a more military hierarchy and you know you, you want to have good relations with the people in your team and that matters. Mm. Um, whether or not you have particularly good contacts with other partners across the business is probably what sets aside a, a great lawyer from a good one. Yeah. Um, but I think you can be a good one without that. Whereas mm. I think in-house you really struggle to get anything done if you don't understand who drives what um, mm. and what do they need and how can you be helpful to them, um, which is probably the kind of most fundamental bit of, of our practice. Um, mm. And again, I think that's a, that's a skill you can nurture. Um, I think one of the ways of doing it is actually just watching other people do it. And I think one of the biggest challenges people have going back into the industry is juggling working from home versus being in person because that sort of soft skill even though I, for example, know that it's an important skill, I'm still very junior. I struggle to pass it on in a way that isn't you know, watch what I do and try and do what I do. Mm -hmm. um, because that, that is how you do it. Um, you see other people work with managers, sit on yeah. board meetings, get things done. Um, and I think that certainly as people emerge into the world of work, whether or not your students go to law firms or anywhere else, when people ask, you know, do you want to work in person or remotely or a mix of both as, as we are doing at Axer XL? Um, we found that it's, it's great to prioritise, well, what do you want to get out of today? Yeah. And sometimes you might want to get learning some soft skills out of your day. Um, mm. I think it's important. Yeah. And you need to be around people um, to yeah. do that. And whilst the virtual world has, let's face it, got us through most testings of time. There's only certain things, um, I, I truly believe this anyway, um, that you can learn from pro by process of osmosis by being around other people. And, and we're starting to see that shift, I think, going back into offices now. But um, it, what comes across um, really clearly, which I'm just delighted to see all these years later, um, is that you clearly love being a lawyer, which is just fantastic. Um, What's the best thing about being a lawyer, Andrew? Um, it, it's definitely not the the stream of questions from family and friends about <laughs> matters, uh, which I don't think ever ends. Um, I'm not sure it, it sounds pompous and quite trite, but I think um, I'd have to say it, it's giving a kind of an important contribution to, to something that matters, um, which maybe would be sound less ridiculous if I explain. Um, 
But I think, you know, so much is shaped by the law um, and the law is so necessary to so many projects, whether or not they're actually purely legal or, or anything else. I think it's it feels good when you're giving good advice and clear advice to get something over the line, knowing that, you know, without that contribution, a project might not have advanced. Um, and it's especially important, you know, when the project itself is important, so whether it's a massive corporate merger that you've been advising on, if you're in practice. Um, or, I mean, I find you, you can't really get better than the ransom cases. There, there is no better feeling than knowing that a ransom case that you've been advising on has, has been resolved successfully. Um, and you know, and I like to say, you know, it's not the lawyers sending the emails and doing the vetting who really save the lives. There are some great people out there whose job is, is to do that and they deserve that credit. But, you know, without us doing our small piece of the puzzle, that wouldn't be allowed to happen. Um, and I think you do get an, a quite privileged opportunity to to really kind of make a difference. Um, I never thought, I'm sure you never thought you'd hear it, that I would be a kind of vocal sort of spokesperson for becoming a lawyer. Um, but yeah, I, I think it does allow you to do some some really amazing things. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the as you said, the opportunities it, it opens up to you, but also the people that you meet and the people mm -hmm. that you work with and the opportunities that that comes along, that goes along with it. Um, so let's talk about, you know, let's play devil's advocate. You, let's think you know, that you haven't become a lawyer. I mentioned before that you you know you have a very creative side to yourself. You, um, you, you're involved in filmmaking. You have made films in the past. If you hadn't become a lawyer, would you be a filmmaker? What, what would you be doing, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm contractually obliged to say that I would obviously be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, if, if that wasn't the case, I th there are a few things I, I was thinking about this. Um, I'd, I'd quite like to have done something connected to the sea. I do really enjoy that part of my job. That sounds odd. I think I'd make a good harbour master, which yeah. when I really thought about it, I think is actually basically just being a lawyer. Um, it's telling people that their boats are not clean enough and that they're not facing the right way. And it's counting them out and counting them back in again. So it's quite a ridiculous job. But I, I think I could I could do a good go of that. Yeah, um, yeah as you say, I, I like my filmmaking. Um, I would have loved, I think, to, to have gone into the film industry. Um, I suppose one of the things you can say about being a lawyer is it doesn't really close any doors to you, it only ever opens them. Um, I know plenty of people now who practice film law. Um, there are a few people from Norton Rose Fulbright who have gone on to be film lawyers and, and absolutely love it. And I think they've got fast, fascinating careers. Um, so, yeah, I think I maybe wouldn't have been involved in the, the legal side so much as I enjoy producing, directing, writing. Um, so perhaps something out that way. Um, but no, as I say, I can also imagine myself sitting on the end of a pier in a deck chair with some chips and... Uh, I think that'd be quite a good job, really. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. With that image in mind, uh, I think we've come to the end of our time together. It's gone so quickly, but it's been an absolute joy to to hear about your experience at XL and your, you know, just your observations of what it's like to be a lawyer um, and and the different directions it can take you. But before I let you go, I just want to remind our listeners that we'll be back soon with a new edition of Let's Talk Law, where we'll gain some more insights into Life Beyond Kings from another one of our alum. Um, but in the meantime, Andrew, and on behalf of our listeners, it's been fantastic having you on our podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule um, and for joining me. Thank you very much for your time. No, thank you so much. You're very welcome.